You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. And I'm very excited to preach um, for you guys. I've worked very hard on this sermon. Um, I'm just going to start what I want to, uh, the point I want to drive home tonight um, that we can clearly understand is that God is the author of our salvation. Hebrews 2.10 calls Jesus the founder of our faith, of our salvation. Hebrews 12.2 calls Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And in Jonah 2.9, as Jonah is in the belly of the fish, when he becomes repentant, he cries out, salvation is of the Lord, proclaiming that God alone is the source of bringing out salvation in his life. That's what I want us to understand, that God is the beginning of our salvation, he's the middle of our salvation, and he is the end of our salvation. So we're going through the five solas right now, um, and one of the five solas that we're on today is sola gratia, which is Latin for grace alone. Grace is the free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. That's the definition of grace. So it's really, we get what we don't deserve. We've lived awful lives, but God has merited salvation to us despite how we've lived. And there are two general schools of thought on how exactly salvation is received. There's synergism and there's monergism. Synergism is that man of his own free will helps God accomplish salvation for man. That we lend a helping hand to God because he can't quite do it on his own. That he expects something and desires something of us. And then there's monergism, which is God acting alone for our salvation. That he does it all. Examples of synergism, um, you can find that in every religion, just about, with the exception of Christianity, obviously. And we have stuff like Hinduism. We have the way of action. You have to be a good person. You have to live a decent life. You have the way of knowledge, which is to meditate and become one with the universe to, as kind of separating ourselves from the natural world. You have the way of devotion, which is an act of selfless, selfless devotion to any of the Hindu gods. And this is all done with the hopes that when you die, um, you get to come back reincarnated and be better. And you keep doing that eventually until you reach the end, which is your uh, divine or, or whatever it is. Um, and then you have Islam, which is where you must profess faith in Allah. Fast during the month of Ramadan, pilgrimages to Mecca. And I'm just listing a very general, small list because there is a huge amount of stuff you have to accomplish and these religions. But with Islam, all you have is when you die, you say, I hope that I lived decent enough so that way Allah can accept me into paradise. There's no assurance in your salvation. It's just, I hope that what I did was good enough, and then maybe, maybe he'll help me out a little bit. You have the Jehovah's Witnesses. They say you must proclaim faith in Jesus. You must perfectly follow God's law. You must enter through the channel in which they say God provided, which is the Watchtower Society, which is the Church of... Um, Latter-day Saints, or not Latter-day Saints, but Jehovah's Witnesses. If you are not a Jehovah's Witness, there is no salvation for you, they would claim. You have to do those things. You have to submit to their leadership. Um, and then you have Mormonism, which you, again, must profess, profess faith in Christ. You must follow the Lord's commands. And this is from the Book of Mormon. It says, Deny yourself of all ungodliness and love God with all of your might, your mind, your strength. Then is His grace sufficient for you. So they say that you have to do all of these things, 
then grace will be given to you. It's kind of like God helping you, up, helping you out a little bit where you, where you lack. Maybe you're not quite perfect. So it's more of you doing it, but God helps where you're not quite good enough. Um, it also says, it is by grace you are saved after all you can do. That's 2 Nephi 25, 23 from the Book of Mormon. So they claim that you have to do these things, and then you get salvation. There's a huge list of stuff like that they teach that is not biblical. Like I'm not getting into all that tonight. I want you to understand that, but... And this is kind of the basis of what I'm saying. You have faith and works. And then you have Catholicism. Again, you must profess faith in Christ. And this is why it's so important that we understand what Dave talked about last week, sola fide. Um, you have all these religions that say you have to have faith, and then they tack on this huge list of stuff that we have to do in order for God to accept us. Um, so Catholic Church would say you must profess faith in Christ. You have to be baptized, the removal of original sin. You must do good works to maintain salvation. There's communion to forgive you for your venial sins, which are sins you weren't aware that you did. Then there's penance to forgive you for your mortal sins, which are sins like um, murder or sexual immorality or those kind of things. They'd say you've fallen away from God's grace. So you must do those things to get back into good graces with, with God. And then there are indulgences that you can do. It's time spent in prayer, teaching, or studying God's word. These are all things that are done. And through doing those things, you access what is called the treasury of the church, and those are the works of Christ, Mary, and the saints. And we, they say that we would get those works if we do those things, and that takes time off purgatory. So it says that Jesus did not die to forgive you of your sin, or Jesus did die to forgive you of your sins, but did not take away the temporal punishment for your sins, so you must work to get out of purgatory. Um, that's synergism. That's a very long, exhausting list of things that other religions would say we'd have to do to be accepted by God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches monergism. The Bible teaches that we are saved by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. This is all told through Scripture, which we believe is our ultimate authority alone, and this is all to God's glory. Man does not cooperate with God for salvation, nor does he even have the will to do so. This was a big deal in the Reformation. Um, just uh, seven years after the Reformation, in 1524, there was a man named Erasmus that came along. He attacked the idea of us not being able to cooperate with God for salvation, and he wrote a book about it for seven years. Um, and then eventually Luther came on, or Luther came, came along, and he wrote a book um, rebuking that. Uh, I could go into all that stuff, but what was the first thing we talked about at the beginning of the month? Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone is our authority. So I'm not going to go into what Luther said. I'm not going to go into what Erasmus said. I'm not even going to go into what I have to say, because I don't care. I know you guys don't care either. We're going to go straight to Scripture and see what Scripture says about this. So if you go and turn with me in your Bibles, we have blue Bibles in the pews. If you guys don't have any, you can go ahead and um, take those, snatch them up. We're not calling you thieves. If you take those, you can have them. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you and don't want to read that, then we should have it up on the screen here. So here we go, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day that you've given us. I thank you for your word. And I ask that you'd help as we explore what you have said about this, that we'd understand deeply the grace that you have for us. And that you change our lives and change our hearts to submit to your will and show graciousness and gratitude and be humble. And that we could greater understand how you work in us so that way we can bring greater glory to your name. Amen. Okay. Uh, Verse 1 says, And you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Paul is speaking to believers right now, just the same I'm speaking to believers in here. He says you were dead. That's something I want you guys to understand as I'm talking about sin and death, that this is not you anymore. The death that this is talking about does not belong to you anymore. You're alive. Um, So I want to make that clear and that distinction between this. Um, What does Paul mean by death? I think there are three things that we can gather from this. There's only one of those that I think Paul definitely means. Paul definitely means one of these things I'm saying, but I'm going to add two more in that I think are still relevant, and they are definitely biblical and consequences um, for our sin. So, the first one. We have a physical death. In Genesis 3, God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And what did Adam and Eve do? They tasted the fruit. They rebelled against what what God commanded. They decided that they wanted to be like God and usurp his throne. And God is good on his word, so what are the consequences? It's death. Not instantly, because as we're going to talk about, God is gracious and loving. But they did eventually die because God said they would. And so will we. That is a result of sin in our lives. As we talked about a month about a month ago, um, as Dave was preaching, we were in Romans 5, and it was talking about how we have a federal headship under Adam, meaning all the sins that Adam did were passed down to us. So you're either under Adam or you're under Christ. You're in sin or you're in life. Um, and not only do we have the sins of Adam that have been passed on to us, because what do two sinners make? They make more sinners. Adam and Eve could not make righteous people. Um, that's just our state right now. Um, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So it's claiming right there, it's saying that we have sin because Adam sinned, but we also have our own sin. When we die, we are, collect- we are collecting a mountain of sin that will stand behind us as we stand before God when we die. And that will condemn us. So what else do we have? Point two. We have eternal death, which is God's wrath on the wicked. Because of the sin nature that we're born into, passed down from Adam, and the sins that we ourselves have committed, what is a good God to do with us? What does a good God do with wicked people? He punishes, right? Because that's what a good judge does. That's, that's what we expect from law. Whenever we have a court hearing, and someone has done something really evil, and they get off the hook, we're, we're kind of disgusted, aren't we? And us being humans, and we sin all the time, for us to be able to do that, how much more do, does, do you think God expects it? That God is holy, He created us, He's separate, He's set apart, and yet we do things. How much more do you think He demands justice? I think that we can relate to this pretty well with um, the incident. With I'm sure you guys have all heard of, of Brock Turner, 
who was the, the guy who raped that girl behind a, a dumpster. And it's, it's tragic. It's disgusting. And it, it's sad. And he only got, if I'm not mistaken, he only got three months in prison. And so we all, there's a, there's a, a obviously the community is very upset about it. I think we all can say the same, that that's not good. That's not just. That's not okay that someone could do that and just move on with life like nothing ever happened. Because someone was traumatized and hurt for life because of that. So if we can have that position, how much more can God have that position? It says in Psalm 7, 11, and 12, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Indignation is just a strong displeasure at something that is unjust or it's a righteous anger. Uh, Romans 1.18 also says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we, got, we, de- we deserve to die. We have a physical death. Um, we will stand before God one day, and the wicked will be punished. Um, so, but why do we suppress the truth? Why do people suppress the truth of who God is? Especially, it's, it's kind of perplexing. Because you look at the other religions, especially the ones I talked about, and you have to do all these things. You have to, to work, um, selfless acts, in order for God to accept you. You have to impress God, so to speak. And it's whatever with that. But then we have Christianity, which the message is that we were not okay, that we were sick, that we were sinners. And Christ came down from heaven and lived on our behalf and died for us. And there's grace and mercy. Yet that's rejected. That's Really hated. I know at the show the other night, Dave taught the gospel um, after after we had got done performing, and one of the guys had just flipped him off and walked out. He was real upset about it. And it's kind of like, why do people reject this beautiful truth that like we know we're flawed, but there's salvation? And I believe this is what Paul is is um, talking about specifically in this passage, and that is they're spiritually dead. This is the state of all mankind that we have either been in or are currently trapped or that we are currently in or have been in. We are tucked away in the coffins of our transgressions without a single ounce of life in us. We are unable to gasp for air. We had no air in us. We are unable to cry for God to come down and raise us from the grave. We are lacking the consciousness to even realize that we were dead in the first place. And if we could realize it, we wouldn't be willing to do anything about it. Why? Because we're slaves to sin. This is our sin nature. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? We are in our natural state slaves to sin. Uh, Ephesians 2 also goes on to say, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and we are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I want you to catch that. We walked in sin. We didn't just walk in it, but we followed. We actively pursued unrighteousness. We actively pursued the things of this world, which leads to death. We followed the prince and the power of the air. Who is that referring to? That is Satan. Satan is the prince and the power of the air. He has very limited authority. I want to make that clear, that he's on a tight leash with God. He can't just do whatever, we, whatever he wants. You see that with Job, um, that the devil has to ask permission, and God will allow him to do some things, but he has some control here. But we should not let that worry us because um, we know that God is sovereign over things, and he has things working out for our good. So 
We follow the prince and the power of the year, or unbelievers follow the prince and the power of the year. And he is working through the sons of disobedience. The children of disobedience. Who is that? That's mankind. We see that. Adam disobeyed. Eve disobeyed. Their children disobeyed. We all have disobeyed. Um, it just goes on and on. And I think we can see this too whenever uh, kids or children are born. I don't have any kids. Um, but I've seen kids. And I have friends that have a lot of kids. And I see how they act. And they like to disobey. They don't really even have to have a reason to other than they just want to. They will rebel just for the sake of doing it. Uh, so, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our mind. Every faculty that we have is naturally geared towards sins, our minds and our flesh. We have passion for it. We are slaves, serving the world, using the bodies and minds that God has given us to go against the desires of what God would want us to do. And we'd rather give glory to ourselves than give glory to the Almighty God. Um, Galatians 5, 19, it talks about the fruits of the, of the flesh, which is what the natural man will do. Uh, Galatians five nineteen. Now the works of the flesh, the natural man, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I can guarantee you that if I went through this list one at a time and said, if you have done this to raise your hand. I'm not going to have you do that, by the way. I'm not going like, to call you out like that. But if I were to do that, everyone in this room would have their hands raised. That's evidence of the flesh. We've all done this. We've all been a part of this. We've all willingly gone into this. And let's say we're in some parallel universe where perhaps there's like two or three people left who haven't raised their hands to those things. Well, I'll just go further and go to Matthew 15, 19. This is Jesus talking. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Now those hands are up. Now everyone's hands are up. We've all done this. Because it's not about necessarily what you do on the outside, but it's the state of our heart. What do we desire? And our heart is geared towards sin. That's, that's where the sin actually lies. So I'm sure that you guys are probably thinking what you know, I probably thought when I was first introduced to this kind of stuff was, well, I'm not that bad of a guy. I'm not totally like depraved or evil. Like I do good things. And not only me, but I see atheists and people who aren't Christians feeding the hungry and, and helping the poor. Um, yes, that happens. Absolutely. Um, I want to make a distinction here between total depravity and utter depravity. Total depravity is the idea that every part of us is tainted by sin and our minds and our words, our wills. We're not basically good people. And our, th- our, thoughts, our thoughts can prove that. Like our thoughts today, everyone here in this church has had some pretty evil thoughts, I'm sure. Whether you realize it or not, like they're selfish or prideful, um, so, and then there's utter depravity, which is people being as sinful as they possibly could be. We have that example, or, or close, I'd imagine maybe, to Hitler, which is an extreme depravity. That was very evil and very wicked, the way he lived. But even still, that wasn't utter depravity. He could have been way worse, right? He could have done a lot worse. He could have lived longer and accomplished more things. It's by God's grace restraining us that we don't give in to those things. God has given us a conscience. 
So we know right and wrong, but we still don't do what's always right, do we? We still, we still mess up. We still sin and rebel. And that's where we have the relative standard of good and God's standard of good. There's a relative standard of good, again, like I talked about a second ago, that people do kind of good things and they're not completely like deranged and wicked. But then when you put that against God's standard, which is perfection, that doesn't, that doesn't do well. You've got a holy God who's perfect and never known sin, and he looks down on us and sees our wicked, evil hearts. Even if you don't do everything you're thinking, you still think, and you still have a desire to do things you ought not do. That's because we're wicked. That's because we're flesh. And in the flesh, even if you do those things, if you, you feed the hungry and take care of the poor and are selfless, Romans 8.8 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Meaning, if you are not regenerate, if you do not follow Christ, you cannot please God. Why? Because pleasing God is done by our intentions to glorify the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're done, it's done to please Him. And unbelievers do not have that desire. So, while God has given us the common grace of people to do good for each other, it's not really satisfying to God. Because even if they did leave, live like somewhat decent lives but only sinned one time, you still sinned. If you steal a car and give it to someone who needs a car, you stole a car. You're not getting out of that. It's like, well, I know that was nice. You gave it to that dude, I guess, kind of, but you stole it. So it doesn't really help you at all. So us being in our sinful state, us having um, physical death and spiritual death and facing eternal wrath from God, what does Jesus do for us? We, We hear this every week. We hear it taught every week. We sing about it every week. And that is the gospel. That is the good news that Jesus Christ lived and died for us. That all of the wicked that we have done was poured onto Christ on the cross. And the literal wrath of God was satisfied by his death for those who believe so that when we die and come before God, we can say, God, I'm not coming here to stand before you with what I've done because I've done nothing worth giving you. But we say, you promised. You said that if I had faith in your son, and I did, that we'd have everlasting life, that you have given him his good works or given him or given me his good works, that the works that he did were passed over to me so that way I can be righteous before you. So with that being said, we have the good news of Christ and, and the deadness of men. So what, good, what benefit is it for a dead man to be exposed to Jesus Christ? What benefit is it for a man who hates God to be shown God? I think we see what happens in Christ's crucifixion. They hated God. That's the natural response. Romans 3, 10 through 18. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear God. Isn't that kind of what brings out salvation in the first place? That we understand that we have the standard that we're supposed to meet, and we know we have not hit it? It's like, oh, that really bears down on you. And that's when the good news of Jesus Christ becomes so beautiful that we understand that we're stuck under the weight and depth of our sin, and we have no way out, but Christ took it for us. 
So how, how does someone who's bent against God and doesn't want to accept God, how do they become saved? What do they do? Nothing. They're hopeless. Unless God acts for them. And that's where we get the doctrine of regeneration. This is a very beautiful doctrine. We will go into John 3, 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, so Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was a member of the great Sanhedrin, which is the high court of Israel. I believe they had 70 members. They had a ton of power. They were kind of like our Congress. They were the only ones who had the authority to like put kings on trial. They're actually the ones who set in motion for Christ to be crucified. Um, to be a Pharisee, you knew Scripture. You knew it very well. You had to be. And you had it all figured out. You had all the outside stuff figured out. You looked good. You acted right. You did all the good things. And yet, as we see, he was blind. His works that he had made up on his own was not good enough for him in entering the kingdom of heaven. He goes to Jesus in the night, ashamed in secret. And he says, surely I know that you're from God because of your miracles. And Jesus doesn't even play. He goes straight to the point. He's like... He's like, yo, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He knows the issue. Nicodemus understands the analogy. He asks, like, is it possible to be born again? I'm already old. How, how is that possible? I, I can't do that. That's impossible. And Jesus says you must be born of the water and the spirit. Now, again, Nicodemus being a Pharisee, a scholar, if you will, should understand this. And the Old Testament, the water and the spirit linked together. This is where people use that you need to be baptized to be saved. That's not what this is saying. Water and the spirit is synonymous. It's the same thing. In the, Old, in the Old Testament, it's linked together to reference the pouring out of God's spirit when Christ arrives. So the passage he's quoting, Ezekiel 36, 25, 27. He should, Nicodemus should be getting this. This is beautiful. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in the statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we see that God is acting in that. We see that he's the one initiating everything. Birth comes from God above, the new birth, not below. Can we choose to be born naturally? Can we petition to our parent, or for our parents to create us before we're born? No. We have no possible way to do that. It's the same with spiritual birth. We have, there's nothing that we can do unless God acts. We contribute nothing to the new birth. The regeneration is of the Spirit. It's the pure, powerful, sovereign work of Christ. 
This is monergism. This is God working for man who's incapable of working for himself. Ephesians 2.4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In this passage, who is the active and who is passive? Who was rich in mercy? Not just okay or well off, but who was rich, who was wealthy, who was exceeding in mercy? Who had love for us? Who made us alive? The answer is God. What were we in that passage? We were dead. We were trapped in our sin. We were stolen corpses at the bottom of the ocean. We had lifeless, no power of our own to change. But the love, mercy, and grace of God all by himself reached down and pulled us out of our grave. He changed the desires of our hearts that way we may receive the gift of faith to believe upon Christ. God initiates the work inside of our hearts because that's what love does. Love acts, it seeks, it initiates. In the same way, Christ came to earth to work on our behalf through the Holy Spirit. While we were still sinners, Christ made us alive together in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8-10. through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as we see here, not only has God started the regeneration in our hearts, but he's prepared works for us to do in the future. He's currently acting in our sanctification, which is becoming more holy, more like God. 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I worked harder than any of them. I worked, though it was not I, the grace of God that was within me. God was working in him. It wasn't him. It was a spirit moving in him. Same thing in Philippians 2, 12 through 14. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. People like to use this saying, work out your salvation in this kind of postmodern society. It's like, oh, no, man, figure it out for yourself. I couldn't tell you. Man, work it out. That's what scripture says. Figure it out for yourself. Worship whoever. That's not what this is saying. It's saying, work out your salvation. Show it. Show you're saved. And you do this through God who's working in you. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's willing us to do these things. So every aspect of our salvation is fully accomplished by the grace of God. Every day we're dependent on the grace of God that he provides. The empowering of the Spirit to follow his commands and accomplish our sanctification. You don't wake up on your own in the morning and will yourself to follow Jesus. If you do, that's great. Like, I praise God for that. That you wake up and the first thing you think is like, how can I glorify God? That's beautiful. But that was not your natural state. That's not what you always did. And it took time to get there. It's a, it's a grace from God that we even wake up in the first place to begin to follow Jesus. So, 
what I want to take from this. Um, don't, don't be lazy. Pursue holiness. I know, that, I know the tension here as Christians and still struggling with sin that we have a tendency to go way to the right or way to the left. That you're over here and you're like, no, you've got to work and work and, and then God will save you. And then what I'm teaching, which is God did it. So what do I do? I don't do anything because God did it. No, that's not, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. We have to follow Christ. If that, is, if that is your heart in this, then you don't understand the gospel. You would not continually live in sin on a day-to-day basis with no care if you knew what it cost Christ. If you understood that he was murdered for your sins and suffered the wrath of God, we would not act that way. So I don't want us to get lazy. And understanding this beautiful truth. Let us take comfort and let us let it push us into following Christ. But also remember, as I said, that we're required to work. In Ezekiel 36, 25, 27, what I, what I quoted earlier. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. All of that. He says that. But earlier in Ezekiel 18, 31, 32... God commands, cast away from all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. So if you're not a believer here tonight and you're hearing this message and you're thinking, I'm not, I must not be meant to be saved or God's not working in me, so whatever. Um, God's commanding you to repent of your sins. He's commanding you to turn and live. Please. Please repent and trust in Christ. So what does this mean for evangelism for us? Because it's kind of weird too, isn't it? It's kind of like a, a weird, like, well, you can share the gospel, but like we can't save anyone and they, they can't choose it. So, so what do we do? What do we do with that, knowing that they cannot choose, but God has to act in them first? I would say that we should follow, follow Christ's lead on this one, back in John 3. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? He's recalling the things that he talked about. He's not understanding the reference he's making to the Old Testament. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, you, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what does Jesus do? What does he tell him? He's telling him the gospel. The story of Moses says he's lifting up the serpent, the bronze serpent. God was pouring out his judgment on Israel. And Moses had a serpent. Bronze raised it up on a staff. And God said, whoever looks at this will not face my wrath and they will live. And that's a foreshadowing of Christ. That whoever looks upon Christ, the wrath of God is turned from them and we're saved through our faith, through looking towards Christ. That's later on as John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believed in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's directly after that. He's telling Nicodemus the gospel, because that's what changes, and that's what transforms. Apologetics. I know it's real popular in this church. 
among people. It's very important. It's, it's good to know. It's, it's good for conversation from time to time. You have people have questions to be able to answer it. But that isn't what saves. It never was. It never will be. We need to focus on the issue, which is the gospel, their heart. Only God can give them a new heart, so we push towards the gospel. The last point I have on this is Christians, we have no room for arrogance. None whatsoever. We accomplish nothing on our own. Our faith is a gift from God. Our justification is a gift from God. Our sanctification is a gift from God. Uh, Theology nerds out there, all you guys. Who Who is it in you that makes you long to know more about God? It's nothing but the spirit that works in you. Who gave you the natural knack to be able to read for hours and not fall asleep doing it? God. Christians, the talents that we have. Do we make our brains function that way so that naturally we could do it? No, we didn't do that. God did it. Did we do anything to merit our salvation? Could we dare say, God picked me because I'm a righteous man? No. There's no Nicodemus in here. That's for sure. Me included. And even if there was a Nicodemus, it wasn't enough to save him. It was only Christ that could save him through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. What I really prayed for out of the sermon is that God gets glory where it's due. It's due in every aspect of our lives. God chooses the elect. Christ was bruised for the ones that the Father chose and suffered hell for what we deserved. And the Spirit changes the hearts of the ones that Christ died for so that way we could have faith and He works in us daily. And more than that, we're going to hop back to Ephesians 2, 5 through 6 real quick. Uh, This is absolutely beautiful. And I I was reading this verse, and I was going through commentaries, and I got this from the Wycliffe Bible Commentary, which coolly let me borrow. And it is beautiful. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the commentary goes on to say, The scripture teaches that we have been identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection, and in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. The word sit is one of the greatest words in the epistle, indicating the position we have in Christ as partakers of a finished, accomplished redemption and sharers in victory. In heavenly places is used by Paul. Because our position in Christ, we are already potentially in heaven where he actually is. That is grace. That is amazing grace that God has for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy for us. That while we were stuck in our sin, you saw fit to come down and rescue us even though we had nothing to offer. Lord, that you work in our lives daily and you continue to change us. That you help us along in our sanctification as we also struggle and push forth holiness. And Lord, I hope that you would help us, to have, help, help us understand that we should have grace for those who do not believe. Father, in, in this time with politics and, and all, the, all, all these really high tensions and all these issues going on, 
me especially, Father, I have a tendency to pull back and say, what's wrong with people? Why are they thinking this way? And Father, your word explains it. Why wouldn't anyone think this way unless you change their hearts? Lord, let that be our understanding of sin nature. Lord, that we not be prideful or arrogant or say that we're better for anyone because we're Christians and they're not. But Lord, that we feel pity and sorrow and seek for them to know who you really are. We love you so much. We thank you again for this beautiful message of sola gratia. We love you and we praise your name. Amen.